Sony. Hello, Canada. Today's date is April 5th, 2022. Welcome to a special bonus edition of Canadian Common Sense, an interview edition. This is Tony in Saskatchewan. Hope all is well out there. So, in our last episode and the episode before, we talked about a political comeback in Alberta. Well, here today we've got the comeback kid herself. Now, if I wanted to take the time to list all of our guests' accomplishments, different job titles, and publications, shows that she's been a part of, I would probably spend all of our interview time just to talk about how accomplished she is. So I'm going to let her do that for herself, and I'm really pleased to welcome today Alberta media and now political figure, Danielle Smith. Miss Smith, welcome to Canadian Common Sense. Thanks, Tony. Nice to be here. Well, it's certainly great to have you. Now, I uh, I know I understand you had a birthday recently. Happy birthday. I appreciate that. I, I'm an April Fool's Day baby, and when I was a kid, my my siblings used to play terrible pranks on me. So I try to ma- I try to make April 1st my prankster day as well. I haven't been able to do it for a few years. And so I wanted people to think that my announcement might have been a joke. I had a few people say, is this some big elaborate prank? But it's not. I mean, I'm going to jump back into politics at the local level by speaking to be the, the nominated candidate for the UCP in the, in the constituency of Livingston McLeod. It's just uh, it's in south, southern Alberta. So my the town where I make my home now is High River. So it basically goes from High River all the way down to the border of Waterton Park. I don't know if your listeners will be familiar with that. And then over over to the west side uh, into the mountains and the, the coal development area of uh, Pinch Creek and Crow's Nest Pass. So we've got a lot of uh, ranching in the area, a lot of food production in the area, and a lot of really interesting issues. Okay, excellent. Yeah, we actually have a fair number of listeners in Alberta. And actually a personal friend of mine who listens to the show is in your constituency. So I'm sure that... Uh, He's going to be excited to hear this interview. And uh, so for our listeners who are outside of Alberta and outside of Canada, for that matter, the great thing with podcasts is that we, uh, we're worldwide. I never knew that as many people as we have are actually interested in Canadian politics. So uh, I followed your career basically since you were on Global Sunday back when I lived in Alberta, um, through into your through Wild Rose days and ending in around 2015 before you kind of resurfaced on the political scene. And we'll get into 2015 a little later in the interview, uh, why that date's significant. Um, so would you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself? Let, uh, let our Canadian Common Sense listeners get to know Danielle Smith. Well, the common thread in everything I've done has been to be a public policy advocate mostly focused on Alberta policy issues. And I've just had different iterations of that. So I I began as a a researcher at the Fraser Institute, but I've had a a number of different roles that I've played as a business advocate. When I came back to Alberta after my internship at the Fraser Institute, I I headed up the Canadian Property Rights Research Institute. It's where I I learned a lot about our, uh, our ranchers. They called themselves the original voice of free market environmentalists, and I just love that term, but also learned a bit about how we, midi- how, how we mediate the access to land for our oil and gas development, as well as uh, make sure that our surface landowners are protected and compensated. That was a really great education for me. I went on to business advocacy later with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, where we represented 10,000 small business voices. Um, most recently, I was a president of Alberta Enterprise Group, which was one of, of the mid-sized businesses that are a 
call them the invisible economy because a, a lot of we have a lot of business to business operators who run very substantial businesses, often privately owned, privately operated. But because they don't have a storefront, you don't really hear, you don't really have access to them, and they're not publicly traded. You don't really um, have any way of knowing what their interests and, and issues are. So that was such a great experience for me, and I became a business owner myself. My husband and I started a restaurant took over one uh, a restaurant and, and did a full renovation on a an old CN railway dining car and we've been operating that since 2017 so I was at the front line of all of the COVID restrictions that came through in Alberta the open the close being forced to um, to have our our minimum wage female staff be the enforcement officers for the the vaccine pro the mandate program so you can imagine that um, I, I feel I have a particular issue with the way the government has, has managed that. But on the other side, my career in mainstream media. So I, I had, uh, I was initially an editorial writer and columnist at the Calgary Herald, and as you mentioned, went on to Global Sunday, which is a national current affairs talk show where I met my husband. So he's been with me for we're going on twenty years now. Uh, then we, when I when I uh, left politics the the last time. I got tapped to be a radio host for Course Entertainment, so 770 CHQR and 630 Ched is where you could hear me on the airwaves for close to six years. At the same time, I was writing for the for Post Media and the Herald and Journal as well. And uh, the third career that I've had has been in politics. I first ran for public office in in the late 90s for the Calgary Board of Education. I was a, a school trustee for a brief period of time. <laughs> it didn't work out very well. We can talk about that later. The, uh, then I ran for the leadership of the Wild Rose in t- 2009 and was in that position till till 2014 when I made the, uh, the, the fateful and extremely unpopular decision to join Jim Prentice's team, at which point I didn't win my nomination. I, I wanted to continue to serve, but my constituents had another idea. And so I've been, uh, I've been uh, w- waiting for an opportunity to see if I can make amends with the public, if they'll trust me again, and to get back into politics. And, and I, I do, it seems to me my career has happened in threes. I've had three times that I've been a business advocate, three times I've been in the media. And it does seem to me that this is now the, uh, the third time for me to, to try my, 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 uh, my hat at, at politics again. And with the issues being so important, so interesting, I think there needs to be a, a strong rural voice as well as a, a strong voice for our energy development, strong voice for our food producers, as, as well as the, playing that role of the, the local strong advocate as a representative in the legislature. And I know how to do that job. I've always been able to make my voice heard. So I'm going to put it to the people in Linux and McLeod to see if they want me to represent them. That sounds excellent. Uh, oddly enough, I was involved in Alberta politics too, um, I guess around the same time as you were, we actually have a couple of the same con- contemporaries. Uh, I'm not sure how many party labels this gentleman has worn, but uh, your old colleague Paul Hinman and I were, were had started the Alberta First Party back in 1999. And uh, when you were talking about being a rural advocate for, for energy, for farming, um, when I ran with for Alberta First in 2001, it was in the Redwater constituency at that time. And same thing, yeah, I was all in favor of, because our, our utility rates were through the roof at that time, if you remember. And yeah, so I had a lot of that in the doorsteps and I think you're going to find a lot of that again. So uh, that's fantastic. It's uh, 
Well, in my opinion, it's great to have you back in politics, and we're certainly going to touch on a couple of the points that you had uh, brought up in your intro there. Now, with the Wild Rose Party, I had already moved out of Alberta when the Wild Rose started up. I've been in Saskatchewan since the fall of 2003, and uh, so I've been more involved here with just sort of a, you know, one eye on Alberta because that's where I, you know, I'm from, and so it's always going to be home for me. But can you tell me a bit about the uh, the origins of the Wild Rose Party? Were you there right from the beginning? It was created with a merger between the Alberta Alliance and the Wild Rose Party. And uh, when the two came together, and it wasn't a necessarily a happy marriage. I think the founder of the Wild Rose Party was, or how did it go? Maybe it was the other way. <laughs> One of the original founders didn't like the idea of the two coming together. And so there was an initial runoff where, where Paul became the leader. And then af- after losing his seat in the legislature because he had he had been in there as the alberta alliance member um and so after losing his seat in the election i think that was when he decided that they needed to to bring in some fresh blood so he he contacted me and asked if i would consider putting my name forward he didn't want to step aside if there wasn't somebody that he had confidence in to 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 step up to to run and so he did manage to persuade me in 2009 there were a few reasons for that i had been a progressive conservative since my time in campus politics in 92 93 i was a worked on Rick Orman's campaign, which is where I first met Jim Prentice. He was the campaign manager there. And when Rick Orman uh, pulled his name off the ballot, he uh, his team went over to support Ralph Klein. So it was a, a Ralph Klein uh, supporter from the early days. And and so that's that's sort of where my, my thinking about how a political leader ought to conduct himself comes from. Uh, I didn't get involved in, in reform politics in, until a little bit later uh, in 2000. And, and for 2000, I think it was 2004, just after we, we almost, or sorry, 19, gosh, my, 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 my years are running together on me, but it would have been 2004, <laughs> after, or 1994, I guess it would have been after uh, we almost hit the debt wall under Paul Martin. And so I, I'd been involved in, in grassroots type politics. And so I would say my influence had both Preston Manning and Ralph Klein in my history. But Wild Rose appealed to, to me because what I liked about it was the fact that they really felt that the role of the individual MLA was paramount. They believed in things. And Paul's such a passionate speaker for referenda and recall. And in fact, we do finally have referenda and recall legislation coming into effect in Alberta on April the 7th. So I look at that as Paul's enduring legacy, that he really pushed hard for those things, and he's finally achieved them, even though he wasn't in, in government to do so. In addition, the uh, the Wild Rose took a very strong position in defending our energy sector from hostile legislation that was coming in at both the provincial level with a royalty review and the federal level with an end to income trust as well as an end to accelerated depreciation. We were getting hit on all sides by our own conservative movement, if you can believe it. And so that, to me, was a bit of a breaking point. And I, I felt like there was this Everyone was taking the industry for granted. Everybody wanted the the money associated with the amount of revenue and wealth it created, but then they kept on putting barriers in in the way and pummeling the industry unfairly. And so I I worried what that was going to do long term. So that's when I decided to jump into Wild Rose politics in 2009 and stayed there until... 2014, and there's a lot that happened in the meantime, um, and I can we can get into a little bit of it in particular. But I, um, but I, I think one of the things that that became very frustrating and evident for me as I went along 
was how very, very difficult it is to take a, a party that's on the outside and bring it into the mainstream. And it was so, so difficult to get any credibility in Calgary and, and Edmonton. So so there was a lot of frustration that I had at, at being able to, unable to, to break through. And I, I think, unfortunately, we're seeing very much the same thing emerged today that there there is a, a growing rural and urban divide there doesn't need to be i think there's a lot of reasons why we should be working in in common cause between rural and urban alberta but i i, I don't see someone who can who who is doing the hard work of, of bridging that and i grew up as a city girl love our food producers love our energy developers and so i think i can be that voice that is able to bridge the the rural interests with the urban interests and, and hopefully be, be able to bring some unity to, to, the, to the, the, some of the challenges that we've been facing over the last number of years. Well, I certainly see that there, there is an urban-rural divide, but I mean, it's not new. And, and you're old enough to remember, because we're the same age, um, you're old enough to remember the days when Edmonton was referred to as Redmonton, when Lawrence Decor led the Alberta Liberal Party because all seats, all Edmonton seats went liberal and they gradually faded away. Is there even a liberal party in Alberta anymore, by the way? There is, and I believe it still has the same leader as last time around, but they don't have much in the way of traction and much in the way of polling support. And, and you know, it's funny because the term that you just used is, it doesn't really describe very well what Lawrence Decor was. Lawrence Decor was a, a very blue uh, liberal. He, he was, was the one who really challenged Ralph Klein in the last election on issues of getting the balance, budget balance and reducing debt. And so the, the Liberal Party in Alberta historically has actually been quite quite blue. And that was part of the reason why they were doing so well in the polls. We've, we've seen a polarization that has happened as well, as, as we've now seen the progressives consolidate around the NDP and conservatives consolidate around the, the UCP. That's also creating um, a bigger drive and a bigger divide between, between rural and urban Alberta, unfortunately. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, and don't sell yourself short with, with your wild, wild rose days, because you actually were the official opposition for a, a, a few years, were you not? Yeah, we were, and, and we did a we did a great job of holding the government to account. We uh, we, we we pressed on Ed Stelmack on his overspending and the, the royalty framework that he brought into place. To, it was it was such a disaster that ultimately he made the decision that he couldn't win the next election, so he stepped down. And that's when Alison Redford came in. One of the first things she did was to repair the damage that had been done with the royalty framework. But she had her own problems because she came in on the strength of, of making promises to the nurses and teachers and so her spending was completely out of control um, and there there were there were various uh, questionable actions and improprieties that uh, ended up I think driving down her popularity levels to a point where she made the decision she couldn't win the, win the next election and she ended up going so we ended up taking out two premiers and it was when Jim Prentice came back that it seemed to me I was losing a lot of support at that point. I had I, we were we were down into the low teens in the polls. We'd lost four elections. I had uh, executive members bailing on us, fundraisers bailing on us, members bailing on us. I had a group of, of of presidents who were calling for my head, wanting to put a leadership vote forward. I had caucus members leaving, and another half of my caucus threatening to go. And so there there does always have to be a moment in time for a leader when you say, "Am I the right person?" right now is are there just too many forces against me and and so I, I made the decision 
that uh, instead of instead of holding Jim to account, which is what people wanted me to do, they wanted me to to be the same opposition leader that I had been with Ed Stelmack and and Alison Redford. But because of all the factors happening in the, in behind the scenes there that I just described for you, I I'm, I I failed them. I made the decision to to join his team, and it was catastrophic for me personally, but also for the province. There was so much anger that it still I think it created more division in the conservative movement drove them further apart and as a result you ended up with Rachel Notley coming up the middle uh, and winning um, for a majority term for four years so when I look when I look on where we're at right now and obviously Jim and I made the wrong decision but for the right reason and I think it's because there is so much change that's happened in Alberta we've become increasingly urbanized the more urbanized people become the more uh, they demand of government the more they demand of government the more they, they look to to parties like the NDP as for, for their aspirations to be filled. And so if the conservative movement ends up breaking apart again in this province, I think that sets the stage for a Rachel Notley win in 2023. And I want to do what I can to, to stop that because I think the UCP is the right vehicle. I went through a, a lot of uh, tears and trauma in, in trying a, an early stab at unity that failed. And I, I think now that we do have a unified party and movement, I think it's got to stay that way. So I want to do my part to make sure that it does. Fantastic. Now, I do want to talk about the uh, your first attempt at unity, and I'm glad you, you sound much more comfortable talking about it than I anticipated. Um, yeah. Because I remember now, you actually have taught me a few things when you said you had executive members backing away and donors backing away. That's the stuff I didn't hear, I guess, being one province away. And so the perception from the outside, I guess, so let's, let's start that way, was that you had a couple across the floor before you went, and then I believe it was you and seven MLAs all, all simultaneously crossed over to the, the PC. Is that correct? That's how it would have, that's certainly the... The, the sequence that happened. We kicked okay. out one MLA. The caucus made the decision to kick out one MLA. Okay. Two left on their own. And then the uh, there was a group of, of caucus members that came to me and just said that they were going one way or the other. Either they were not going to run for me again or they were going to join Jim's team. And so I could either join them or <laughs> they would leave anyway. And so when you're sort of faced with that, your party crumbling all around you because uh, the, the way it was put to me is just that they felt that, that the credibility gap between Jim and I was just too great, that I needed some more seasoning and so um, just all the confluence of factors, I, I think I was persuaded by that. It's all right, because I, I have learned a lot in the years I've been out of politics, um, especially in the business advocacy world, running my own business, spending six years on the radio. I think I've interviewed every single person who has any grievance in the entire <laughs> in the entire province, maybe the entire country. So I, I really feel like I wouldn't have been able to get that insight into what all the issues are and what all the solutions are. And also, I think I'm a little softer than I was in politics. When you're an opposition leader, your job is to, is to fight. And I can fight, um, but I also... <laughs> learn that we, we have to, I mean, we have to take care of each other. We, Albertans shouldn't be fighting against each other. We shouldn't be pitting one against the other. We're all Albertans. We, we face a real formidable challenge with this government in Ottawa that is constantly trying to uh, pummel us and steal our money. And that's where our fight should be focused. But we've got to be a lot more gentle with each other. And that's um, the other the other thing that I, I wouldn't have learned if um, quite the way I, I have learned it if I hadn't been on, on talk radio for six years. So I, I look at the seasoning that I've had over the, 
the, the time I've been out of office is being very, very positive. And so I'm, I'm, I may not have been ready then, but I'm ready now. Well, that's good to hear. And um, now hearing you explain it this way, I I really owe you an apology because I'm one of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who were who were like, what the hell's the matter with you when uh, you made that decision to cross the floor? And uh, you've explained it well. I I still think maybe you should have either stepped down as leader first before going, in my humble opinion. But um, now that you've you've laid it out the way you have, I actually don't blame you for for crossing the floor, so I'm I'm not mad at you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had con- I had considered there were lots of options. I had considered leaving politics altogether. I was I did I did ask my other uh, caucus mates if any of them wanted to step up for leadership to see if if they would uh, would take on the role because I just I just knew at that point that it was it was almost insurmountable for me to, to try to to bring everyone together and, and mount a credible challenge and. It all failed. So you're right. It would have been a better option for me to sit as an independent or maybe just step out of politics at that time and, and leave it to somebody else. I think people would have been just as mad at me in hindsight. They would have felt I was uh, abandoning them. But the error I made, and I think this happens when you've been instrumental in building up a party, because I, I see that the, the current premier makes the same error. Just because you're instrumental in helping to build up a party doesn't mean that you are the party. The party is its members, and the members always get to decide who leads them. And and so I I, I made the mistake of thinking that the membership would follow me, and that was a that was a grave error. Members members have to be ultimately the ones who make these kinds of decisions. But the other part too is that leaders need to also have, be have, be self aware. They need to know when the public has lost faith in them. And I, I think we've seen a multitude of examples of that. We, we saw that uh, Ed Stelmack made the decision to leave, even though he got 77% in the leadership review, he just knew it was time to go. Same with Alison Redford. She got 77% in her leadership review. And she knew and made the decision that it was time to go. Andrew Shear did the same thing. Aero Tool did the same thing. I mean, sometimes um, leaders are the right leader for the right time and Sometimes it's the wrong leader uh, for the wrong time. And I, I think that that's what we're, we're sort of looking at with our current situation in Alberta, saying uh, the NDP have been pulling ahead of the UCP for literally years now. It hasn't, it hasn't switched. They're gaining ground in uh, Calgary and Edmonton, even gaining in rural. The last poll I saw had the NDP at 32% in rural Alberta. I mean, wow. nor- normally, under normal circumstances... A self-aware leader would say, you know what, maybe it's, my time is, has come and gone. Maybe I was here to, to do a certain task. It's done, and it's time for somebody else. And that's not what we're seeing, which is part of the reason why this leadership review has turned into such a, a controversy. Normally, leadership reviews are indeed very straightforward. You just put it forward. There's a few disgruntled members. People roll into a, a delegate-style selection or move into a, an AGM having – had policy the day before, and it's really a matter of routine. The fact that you had tens of, almost, I think it was 13,500 people sign up to spend $100 to travel hours and hours and hours to get to Red Deer to, to cast a ballot. The um, This is a, a party at war with itself and at war with its leader, and the, uh, the leadership seems a bit oblivious about it. And that's, I think, perplexing to everybody, because normally you'd expect a leader to do what's best for the movement and, so, and to preserve unity. And unfortunately, we're just, we've got a lot more division in store for us ahead, I'm afraid. 
Yeah, and we're going to get to, to him right away because I, I think that you've brought up a few interesting points uh, that I want to address. One more thing I want to address before we get to uh, to the current UCP is you would, you would penned, uh, whether it was an op-ed or you'd penned a letter when you left Chorus Entertainment back in, was it February of last year, I believe? And yeah. that I've, I, I wanted, if you don't mind talking about that, I thought that was very interesting. You made a few few points there I'd like you to clarify on. Uh, I got the impression that you weren't really allowed to speak your mind. And I'm just kind of curious in a, in a world where we're supposed to have a free press, what exactly was holding you back in the media? I think what we saw during COVID is something quite, quite strange occurred. And I, I, the way I analyze it is this, is that when, especially with broadcast media, with radio and television broadcast media, when an emergency is declared, they, they really are supposed to be the vehicle for the government to get its message out. And I understand that. I respect that. I've been through a couple of emergencies with the Southern Alberta floods, as well as I was on the air during the Fort McMurray fires. And I, I get it that that is a role that is necessary to be played. But it's interesting that the public health emergency was not, it does not follow the same rules as the Emergency Act. And I, I think we now know the difference. When the government at the federal level tried to invoke the Emergencies Act, look what happened. It had to be affirmed by the legislature. It had to be debated in the House of Commons and passed. It had to be debated in the Senate and passed, and it couldn't reach that high bar. In fact, I, I think a lot of people believe that the reason it never survived more than a few days is because the Senate was just simply not persuaded and was going to vote it down. And so that is an important distinction because the media treated the public health emergency as if it was invoking the Emergencies Act, which meant that they felt they had to be the broadcaster of the government message, and they couldn't say anything that contradicted the government message. And maybe you could make that case if it really was only two weeks to flatten the curve. So then the, the, the media corrals to get the message out for those two weeks to make sure everyone's on the same page. You can't make that, that case if it lasts for two years, because now you've created a propaganda arm out of your media. And so it was becoming very, very clear to me that it was an inappropriate use of the emergency power. It was inappropriate bullying by the government, quite frankly, of the mainstream media. The mainstream media is supposed to be the fourth estate for a reason. It's supposed to be the democratic guarantor of, of our rights and freedoms and free information and challenger of institutions. It's an essential part of democracy. And it was failing um, and has failed over the last two years because I think of a, a misinterpretation. They, they came to the view... I think it was led by the social media, because I watched some testimony of Twitter and Facebook and YouTube in the U.S. Congress, and Sundar Pichai with Google, the parent company of YouTube, uh, said that he was not going to allow anything on his platforms that contradicted Dr. Anthony Fauci. So that's fair enough if that's what the social media want to do, but they're not journalists. They don't make the decisions for mainstream media, but for some reason, media fell, fell along on that same pattern, and they made the decision that they would not allow any testimony or any um, broad, broadcasting of any view that contradicted either Theresa Tan or, in our case in Alberta, Dr. Dina Hinshaw. And so we've made some, uh, we've seen government make some terrible decisions as a result. They're, they've suppressed um, the information about the potential for therapeutics to keep people out of hospital and allow people to get tre early treatment when they got diagnosed. They have suppressed any discussion about the alternative approach to dealing with COVID, like the Great Barrington Declaration, which is the approach that they've taken in Florida. They, they've suppressed information about 
who's genuinely at risk. I mean, we know, we've had a pretty clear profile of who the most at-risk citizens are. So vulnerable over age 70 with multiple pre-existing conditions, also most likely living in nursing homes. They've given the impression to everyone that the minute they walk out the door, they could drop dead of COVID. And it's just, it's just not accurate. And so they've created this, this fear uh, narrative, and then they've suppressed any voices of of, of being trying to trying to bring some balance to it. So I, I I've been pretty hard on the media for for following along that line, and I I hope they at some point revert to the role that they should play, and start doing the kind of reporting that they should have done all along. But this is uh, this is not this can't happen again. We we can't see the Public Health Act have these kind of open-ended measures where we essentially turn all the powers over to a single unelected health official and no one's allowed to challenge them. I'm encouraged to see in Alberta, for instance, Todd Lowen has put forward a private member's motion or bill that would bring the same political oversight to the invocation of the Public Health Act as we have to the Emergencies Act, meaning you declare a public health emergency, got to be debated by the legislature. It's got to pass in the legislature. And there's got to be an endpoint on it where it comes back to the legislature for affirmation. If we did those kinds of things, there's multiple points along the way over these last two years that we, we would have taken a different turn and we would have seen different reporting. So that was my frustration at the time, is that I felt like I was not able to do my job in giving fair, accurate, and balanced coverage. And so... Uh, I was I, rather than fight against the big machine because it was one of those things that everyone in the world, all of the media in the world, were doing the same thing. I just felt like it was time for me to to do a bit of a career change until until some sanity prevailed. And I think we're we're slowly getting back to a, a level of sanity. It, it took the freedom convoy for out of it and realized that. There wasn't broad-based consensus on conti- continuing with these kinds of regulations and restrictions. I've talked to, to people internationally. Canada is still a, a weird outlier in wanting to cling to a lot of these restrictions. And I think part of it is that we just haven't seen the uh, the full reporting that we should have seen to get people prepared to move to the endemic stage. And so if I can provide a little bit of a voice of balance, that there is a way to keep people protected, especially our most vulnerable, but we can do it a different way without punishing our kids, without punishing them with periodic school shutdowns, without letting them see their friends, canceling Christmas, not letting people go to hockey games, not letting people go out for dinner, not letting kids play play sports or see their friends. We, we, we can't continue to do that anymore. It's just not fair to them. It's taking away their childhood at a time when we know that there's a better way to, to protect our vulnerable citizens. And so I, I want to be able to bring that voice as well in politics and hopefully have some influence on media as a result. Well, I'm glad to hear you do. I, uh, I'm also a fan of the Barrington Declaration, and I got to suffer through some of uh, your province's COVID restrictions when my mother passed away in Calgary last year because uh, the nursing home she was in would only allow two designated visitors. And since I was out of province, they weren't... weren't all that keen on letting me in until I just showed up one night and just walked in like I owned the joint. So I probably should not have been allowed in, but I just kind of stormed in because my mom was dying. Right. So, uh, so let's talk about the, you know, I must, 
say, like, everyone has a story like that. And that's the thing, is that there's been a collective trauma over the last two years. We all have things that hurt us over the last two years. And and I think that we're not seeing very much sympathy or empathy on the part of politicians. They, when, when people get angry and go out to protest and, and join convoys, it's because there's a lot of disruption in their life. And, and I think we, we need to demonstrate, I mean, rather than call them extremists and bigots and lunatics, as our premier has done, we need to understand what what is behind that and then start addressing some of the issues because it, it's going to it's going to take a lot of town halls to get that talked out and it's going to take uh, probably some some reparations and maybe some apologies uh, to make sure that that people have some confidence it won't happen again and and I, I hope I can play a bit, a bit of a role in helping to bring that perspective forward too well, excellent yeah and you've you've brought up a, a couple of good points I mean uh, Jason Kenney's rhetoric so let's uh, get into talk about the uh, leader of the UCP now I don't think I need to ask the question if you're interested in leading the charge because uh, it's quite clear you've uh, that you you are definitely are interested in Jason Kenney's job. Now his leadership review, you're right. There was a big groundswell of people who wanted to go to Red Deer and vote. They've now put that off to mail-in vote balloting. I kind of understand because you probably couldn't accommodate 13,000 people at that hotel in Red Deer. Regardless, I think he's playing some some political games here. Um, I'm gonna guess you're probably not going to vote to affirm his leadership, but do you buy the argument that he's trying to put forth that 50% plus one is going to be good enough? No, it's not going to be good enough. But here's the thing. Like, I don't, I don't think that the, that the premier's record has been uniformly bad. I think, I think I've, I've demonstrated some of the areas where I think he's, he's failing. He's, um, on respecting the role of the individual MLA on the, the COVID policy flip-flops. I mean, he promised we wouldn't have vaccine mandates, and then he brought in vaccine mandates and vaccine passports. And I, and he's not taking a strong enough role in, in fighting Ottawa on, on some really key issues. But he's done a great job in, uh, once again, defending our energy sector. I've got no complaints there on asserting us on the international stage. He's, um, he's attracted a lot of business investment here, and he's very proud of the you know, Dell Chemical announcing a, a zero emissions hydrogen plan or net zero hydrogen plant, and Air uh, Products announcing a net zero hydrogen plant. We're going to be the center of a hydrogen economy in Western Canada. Infosys and Emphasis are two high-tech companies coming to Calgary, and so we're seeing a growing high-tech sector we, we've attracted some major film productions like last of us and very and ghostbusters and various others so there's there's some good things that are happening here on the economy side so i don't want to say that it's it's uniformly that to look at what the people are telling you and when your public opinion polls consistently have you the lowest rated premier and the ndp have consistently pulled ahead um that that's got to, you, you can't ignore that so when when they made the decision I was going to wait um, to make my decision on, on announcing until I saw what happened on April 9th. But with um, the executive committee making the decision to to play with the rules and switch to a mail-in ballot, I felt, you know what, people need to know that there's more than just Brian Jean who's interested in this job. I'm interested in this job too. Take that for what you will. Um, it'll be up to the members to decide if they want to, to keep the current leader or if they want to have a leadership race and, and, and try for someone new. And it won't just be Brian, Jean, and I who, who jump in. It'll probably be a, about a dozen others. And so they're, 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 it is possible to have somebody else continue on with the good work of the UCP and not lose any of the ground, but also correct some of the mistakes that have been made in the, in the last couple of years. And so I would say that I, I have a, a very balanced approach. I, my, my main focus 
on getting back into to politics again is because we've got some very, very serious issues around uh, energy security and food security. And I, I think that, that this area that I'm going to represent is going to be instrumental in, in making sure that we can provide energy and food to North America and to our international allies as long as we get out of our own way. We don't have a federal government passing hostile policy that that tries to create our energy sector. As long as we uh, are pushed back every time Jagmeet Singh and, and uh, Justin Trudeau have some new federal scheme they want us to pay for, whether it's child care or long-term care or uh, dental care or pharmacare, every time we have a new federal program, it's a similar pattern. Because we are such a productive economy, we end up paying disproportionately more taxes so that they can subsidize programs in eastern Canada where they can get more votes. And I, I just am perplexed as to why we continue to allow this to occur. We've got to draw the line somewhere and start saying, no, we're going to collect our own taxes. We're going to have our own provincial police. We're going to collect our own employment insurance. Ultimately, we're going to have our own pension plan. Um, but the, the, we have to start somewhere. And those are the kind of things that, that I hope I can, I can talk about and advocate for, regardless of the position I have. On the, on the issue of, of my writing in particular, when I talk about the, the dangers on, on food security, I mean, you, you look at what our producers are going through right now. Many of them weren't able to get their product to market because of supply chain disruption. I talked to one of my, my farmers in the area, and he just finally got his crop uh, uh, tra- uh, transported last week, which means he finally got paid, which means he now can finally start buying the inputs. And, of course, now look at what he's facing on prices. Double or triple the cost for fertilizer if he can get it at all. You've got triple the cost for electricity. You've got 60 cents um, per liter higher diesel fuel. So all of these things are going to have a, a major impact on, on food affordability as well as on our, our production volumes. When you, when you have U.S. President Joe Biden warning about food shortages in America, we've got to sit up and take notice. When was the last time we ever talked about food shortages in North America? And yet we still have all of these barriers to our food producers being able to, to get the product they need to get their their product in the field and then once they do get it harvested to get it to market and so we've got a we've got a lot of serious issues that need to be raised and and that's part of the reason why regardless of what happens with the leadership question my my voice is still needed to to represent the people of this constituency oh absolutely and there was a a political cartoon i think it was national post i'm sure you would have seen it a few days ago that had Brian Jean marching Jason Kenney off the plank of a pirate ship, and you were with a saw behind Brian Jean sawing off that plank. So, uh, so I mean, everybody certainly is aware you have some aspirations, but um, so, so let's talk. Well, about- and I must say, like, I would hope that I can work with Brian Jean. I mean, it'd be, he, 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 he and I had our differences. He had to, to step in and clean things up um, after after I left Wild Rose, and, and he did better than I did. He got in. He ended up getting 21 seats, whereas I had only gotten 16. And I think he left the public stage sooner than people wanted. So I, I talked to him frequently, and I'm, I'm just I'm very encouraged by him being back in public life. And so he charted the way by winning his constituency in Fort McMurray. So I figured, you know what? Why don't I try that too? I think it'd be really fun to serve with him in the legislature. Excellent. So um, as our time's starting to wind up here, let's talk a little bit about Alberta's role in Canada. Now, you you alluded to that in your uh, your last statement there as far as Alberta's constantly paying the freight for Ottawa's social programs. And 
One thing that uh, that I've learned by growing up in Alberta, especially while we grew up at the same time together, is the NEP has shaped my life uh, back in the early 80s. And it's shaped a lot of Albertans' lives and, and the way they look at Ottawa. So in Alberta elections, and I, I'm sure it's the same now as when I live there, that when you're running for premier, you're, you're always running against whoever's the prime minister in Ottawa, even if it's a conservative prime minister, because they continue to pander to the east. So um, you're young. You have a lot of runway uh, should you be successful in becoming premier or at least leader of the UCP. What are your goals as far as the relationship between Alberta and Ottawa is concerned? Do you think there's any kind of, you know, fences that can be mended there? It may may surprise you to hear me say that I feel like we've had a a major breakthrough with um, Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo. He is, I mean, remember who Stephen Gilbo is. Oh my god! He got arrested scaling the CN Tower to oppose fossil fuels. He was on Ralph Klein's roof, scaling Ralph Klein's roof and intimidating Ralph's wife, Colleen, uh, with his environmental advocacy. So he's, he's uh, when you talk about environmental extremists, he is the poster child for it. So I didn't anticipate that we were going to be able to make much of a breakthrough with him. He's been so hostile to our fossil fuels, to natural gas, and to nuclear. Now, the interesting, funny thing happens when you've got your European allies suffering from energy security issues, and you've got escalating um, affordable energy costs. Uh, all of a sudden you can look at our energy in a different light, especially when we're comparing where Germany has to get its natural gas from, Russia, which has just invaded Ukraine and created international calamity. So I think that a confluence of factors have caused a major rethink about how do we get to this net zero target by 2050 in a way that that, uh, is achievable, and how do we also ensure energy security and energy affordability? Now, Quebec has an advantage. I mean, they have the Churchill Falls deal, which is in place until 2041. They've got cheap hydropower based on a deal that Newfoundlanders, by the way, are not particularly happy about. Uh, But you can't presume that because Quebec was able to get that sweetheart deal that everybody else can. Alberta and Saskatchewan are reliant on fossil fuels for their energy grid. And so this vision that everything is going to be transformed into wind and solar power, everything put on the grid, including our home heating and all of our transportation, in seven and a half years by 2030 is ludicrous. And so that, I think, was the paradigm that the environment minister was operating under. Uh, But I think we've had a breakthrough there with uh, Europe now allowing for green bonds for natural gas, especially with carbon capture technology associated with it, and nuclear. That opens up an, an avenue for us to be able to, to, to not only have our energy industry get to net zero, we can get there faster than anywhere else. We've got massive underground storage capability of CO2 emissions. We've also um, increasingly started seeing companies turn carbon dioxide into useful products this is the sort of the remarkable thing about organic chemistry is that you can take molecules apart and put them back together and in different formations and form all kinds of things. And so if we can effectively capture CO2, which we now can do, we can turn it into uh, ethylenes for alcohol. There's actually a, an alcohol product, a vodka called Airco, that is made from a pure stream of CO2. You can capture it and turn it into industrial minerals, as a company in Calgary does, and turn it into soap. You can turn it into... Um, uh, polyethylenes and make plastics. You can turn it into uh, fly ash and use it as a component in cement so that you can make harder concrete. You can turn it into carbon nanofiber and carbon nanofiber has almost limitless applications. It um, could be a replacement for steel. So you'd be able to create vehicles and beams that are dur- more durable, more lightweight, able to 
to weather the, the, the extremes of our weather conditions even better than steel. So th- this is the world that I think we're seeing our energy sector move into. And I, I think we've had a breakthrough with the federal government because they've recognized that we need to have uh, investment credit for carbon tech for carbon technologies, uh, even though they continue to have unrealistic expectations about how fast we can get there. They want us to reduce emissions by 42% from 2005 levels by 2030. But at least we're making headway in them understanding that the the transformation happening in the oil and gas sector is allowing us to take these this products and move more towards building materials and um, and construction materials and we're going to in the future have less and less of it that is combusted and, and if we if that's the case if we're using it less for combustion and we're uh, the the the, the, uh, the amount that we are burning that we find some way of of capturing the emissions or even doing direct air capture then then we're all going to achieve the same target so i feel like there's a potential for a breakthrough i haven't felt quite that optimistic in a while but we'll know for sure when we see the federal budget come down in a couple of days time just how just how much they've embraced this new reality that we find ourselves in and if so then i I think we can work collaboratively with the with the federal government that being said they can't continue to siphon off a huge amount of uh, Alberta resources, demonize our energy sector, and then just expect, expect us to suck it up. We, we need to take a, a, a more aggressive stance like like Quebec has, and in fact, like Scott Moe has in Saskatchewan. He declares Saskatchewan a nation within it. To be going down the path of autonomy too. We're a grown-up province. We've got a grown-up level of, of of dollars coming in, and we've got to be grown-ups in, in making sure that we're taking care of our own business. And that's what I'd like to see happen. Wow, I uh, I really admire your optimism. I mean, my only optimism for Steve Gilboa and crew is that his government has never ever met one of the environmental targets that they've set. So I uh, I really admire how optimistic you are about this relationship. So I. I'm I'm hopeful that you're right, and I don't have a lot of faith. I mean, you're absolutely right that Ottawa loves to raid the treasuries of Alberta and Saskatchewan, BC, and you know late, lately Newfoundland with their energy revenues. So I'm I'm hoping there will be a more conciliatory relationship, and um, well, with any luck, we'll get to have a shot of that uh, air vodka, but if nothing else. So. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many opportunities, right? Can you imagine the Novus vodka or the yeah. vodka? Save the environment. Have a shot. Yep. I mean, the, the, the marketing opportunities are, are have great potential. Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, so here we'll give you a, a real, real tough exit question here, Miss Smith. So, when you're on the campaign bus and you're heading to that big rally in Medicine Hat during the during the next provincial campaign next year, what's on your playlist to get you all pumped up? Oh my gosh! You know it's so funny that you should ask that because all of my music choices are pre nineteen ninety six because that was the the last time I used to I, I met, made my way through university by by working in the restaurant business and so when I finished the restaurant business I actually finished stop listening to music so anything I tell you is, I mean your listeners probably aren't even going to remember I was a big Duran Duran fan and Depeche Mode uh, I think the only modern artist that I speak to and she's still a little bit old now is Pink um, I like I, I love the music of Pink uh, <laughs> get, let's get this party started if, if uh, I'm coming up so we better get this party started that would probably be the one that would be on my playlist well, there we go well see my, I think my wife would bond with you over Depeche Mode any day so uh <laughs> <laughs> 
So all right, let's wrap it up there, Miss Smith. Um, thank you so much for joining us. I've learned a lot, and I hope Canada that you've learned a lot as well. Uh, don't be a stranger. I'd love to talk to you again. Not too bad. Thanks so much, Johnny. All right, have a great day. You too. Bye now. Bye bye.